Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's Live in the Bream with host of Fox News at Night, Shannon Bream. All right, this week on Livin' the Bream, it does to many of us seem like it was just yesterday, but the battle over the seat, the nomination, the confirmation of now Justice Brett Kavanaugh has been months ago, and you are not going to read a more thorough background and deep dive into what happened than you will get in the book Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court by Molly Hemingway, which is senior editor with The Federalist, and Carrie Severino, who is chief counsel and policy director of the Judicial Crisis Network. She heads that up. Thank you guys for joining us today. It is great, great to, to be, be here with you. Um, I don't even know where to start, honestly, with this, because we all sort of live through this. Um Carrie, I'll start with you. I mean, what do you think is new here that people didn't? There's so much in here, but but what were the things that really stuck out to you that that were things that either were misportrayed or never actually shared in the media when this was going down? Yeah, I mean, we, we all we all lived through this, and I think a lot of people were watching it closely. I was obviously involved helping get his nomination advanced. Molly was covering in depth as you were, so we felt like we thought going into it, we wanted to tell the story. We knew it was an important story to tell about the, the assaults on due process. And we talked to over 100 people to do it. So we got a lot of details. We didn't know how much we didn't know mm-hmm. going in. So after after you speak to the president and you know dozens of senators and members of the Supreme Court, people who knew Kavanaugh and Blasey Ford, there were so many things we learned. I think one of the most interesting things to me was learning some of the stories of courage that made this nonformation possible. And you know, there's, there are several women who I think really stood out as, as being courageous. One of the ones that, that a lot of people saw a, a glimpse of was Susan Collins and with the way she took this nomination so seriously. She she was committed, you know, from way earlier than this than the Blasey Ford allegations, she was one of the people who took it the most seriously. She built a team of of additional lawyers to help her as a non lawyer look at his record. And then she continued that commitment to due process through the whole thing. So we learned, for example, that when she saw the date on Blasey Ford's letter to Senator Feinstein, that that was a huge red flag for her, that she said, wait a minute, these these are allegations that have been kept silent for over a month. What's going on here? Why why wouldn't they have followed the normal process that has long been in mm-hmm. place? We learned that she was, you know, it, like many people, when you start seeing a pattern of ever increasingly um, outlandish claims, that that also you know, rate, rate, rang alarm bells for her, and it starts to sound less and less plausible. Um, and and, the, and uh, then finally, watching how she was standing up to the uh, harassment, and and you know, it was not just the coat hangers, which we also learned. This is from ab- abortion uh, advocates who were sending these to her office, but not just later in the process, before Kavanaugh was even nominated. They already had started this. I didn't realize it started that early, and down to um, attacks at her own apartment. Someone who assaulted her. Um, Someone sent uh, something that Clay claimed was rice into her house. We have the details of how her whole house was on lockdown, mm-hmm. and down to her, her their new puppy had to had to be quarantined. I mean, 
mean, it was really extensive, but they picked the wrong person, and she was someone who stood up with a lot of courage, even in the face of that harassment. So, But, you know, so many stories like that of the mm-hmm. courage of, of women who really helped this confirmation succeed. Well, and I think we all remember sitting there and watching when she went to the floor, and we were waiting to see how she was going to vote, and she outlined this whole thing, and you're like... Which way is she going to go? Where is this going to land? I mean, you thought you knew as she was getting into further and further into that speech. But I think it's important that you point out what was going on behind the scenes, because we're getting reports as well from her staffers about threats that are being made and, and all kinds of things that I think probably got lost in the shuffle of the moment that people a lot of people didn't realize how much was actually going on. Mm-hmm. So um, we remember her speech. We remember her vote. And just recently she said that she doesn't regret it. I mean, she stands by it for her. She fully vetted um, what she heard. But Molly, I got to say, this is, I think, the fourth confirmation that I covered. And I we knew within 10 seconds of being in that room when it started, this was not going to be like anything else we'd ever seen before. I was a little startled in the beginning when Chuck Grassley, who was then obviously chairing the committee, started. And it wasn't 10 seconds in when one of the other members jumped up on the dais and and immediately began objecting and trying to throw a wrench into the proceedings technically um, to to the protesters who immediately began to pepper the hearing and who were in there continuously. I'd never seen anything like it. Well, and I would argue it actually began even before that. Within minutes of Kavanaugh being nominated, Mm -hmm. there's this orchestrated protest on the steps of the Supreme Court. And it was chaotic. You were there. You saw saw what was happening there. Uh, But so many senators, including senators who were on that committee, came down to announce their reflexive hostility to this nominee. So you kind of knew it was going to be different than the normal procedure where people at least go through the motions of saying they're going to take a candidate, Mm -hmm. uh, a nominee, seriously and, and evaluate his philosophy. And it continued on with these protests and whatnot. Uh, when when things broke down in that first uh, set of hearings, it was clear that Republican senators were appalled by the antics of their Democratic counterparts. You know, we think of these people as being on opposite teams, but usually they actually get along pretty well. And when they saw, you know, it wasn't just these outbursts; it was they they control the seats for the who who comes into the uh, hearing room. So they knew that these Democratic senators had some control over who these protesters were. They weren't even letting him get through a, a statement. You had Cory Booker intentionally releasing committee confidential information Mm -hmm. in violation of Senate rules. You had Kamala Harris uh, accusing someone of perjury without any evidence at all whatsoever. And then Dianne Feinstein, who has this letter, who does not show up to any of the normal uh, hearings you would have where you handle allegations like this, doesn't even show up to the confidential Mm -hmm. hearing where, where you could do that. And instead, gets it out through the media, arranges a arranges an attorney who's known for handling high-profile PR-necessary mm-hmm. uh, cases. And so by the time the hearings have reopened and Christine Blasey Ford has testified and Kavanaugh has testified, that next day we actually described the unbelievable scene in the anteroom that's off of that Judiciary Committee uh, room where Jeff Flake and Chris Coons are wrapped mm-hmm. up and tangled up in this tiny little phone booth as they're negotiating how to extend the FBI investigation. And you have senators so frustrated with each other that they almost literally get in physical fights. Mm-hmm. And I remember, too, that they were having to be escorted just to get to the floor, I mean, to vote. Some of these guys ended up, their families, um, some of these men and women, their families had to have um, protection around the clock because this became so emotional and so passionate on both sides. I mean, it was it was just 
everything was heightened. It seemed like everything, folks felt like everything was at stake. This is the Kennedy seat. He had been a swing um, justice in a lot of important cases. And they felt like, um, you know, I think about the fact that if President Trump is the president when one of the Democrat nominated justices goes, as, as, um, you know, chaotic as a lot of people felt Kavanaugh was, I think that we're in for something else moving forward. And I know that the focus of the book is also looking forward to where we go from here on these nominations. Yeah. And one of the interesting stories we learned it was so is so interesting hearing kind of the inside story of how the Kavanaugh family dealt with one of the things. But we, we found that Ashley Kavanaugh, even before her husband's nomination, was literally praying that he not get the nomination. She had already seen him through two nominations because it actually took two nominations and hearings Mm -hmm. for him to get that one appellate court seat because he already had endured so much opposition from Democrats in his first uh, first hearings. So she knew she thought, you know, we've got a great life here. He's got life tenure. This is a wonderful honor, but we we don't need this. And imagine if that was her approach going into and not having any idea how crazy that was really going to get. What is the next vacancy going to look like? How are we going to get the qualified men and women who want to be able to serve our country? Are they going to be willing to do so if there's another vacancy? Because this, of course, was replacing Justice Swingfoot. Mm-hmm. If, if President Trump's replacing uh, Justice Ginsburg, for example, one of the more liberal members of the court, mm-hmm. what would it look like? So that was part of the reason we wanted to write justice on trial, because we want the American people to know the facts, know what really happened here, so that we can steal ourselves and kind of be a little inoculated and not forget what happened before. Force. We're prepared if this kind of, uh, of incivility um, it breaks out yet again. Well, fair to say that if there is a Democrat president, whenever that happens again, um, and they have an opening, um, and we have a similar makeup and situation in the Senate, um, that the right uh, now will feel like they need to respond in the same way and say, like, listen, if there's somebody that we think is going to join the core that um, would be somebody that we feel like would would take the court in a position that we don't or, or you know a trajectory we don't want it to go on um why shouldn't they be out there just as vocal and saying this is not the right person for the court well you know one of the things i'm really proud of is having worked on both nominations i've opposed and that i've i've been in favor of is that we haven't ever done that we've seen now several times where the left has gone and not even just gone to the misconstruing someone's record which i think is is deplorable but uh, personal attacks and attacks on their family and things so i think they're Actually, there should be room for debate about nominees. This is one of the most important things Mm -hmm. a president does. They're on the court for life. They have incredibly important decisions. But we should never go to the point of attacking them personally and particularly in in unsubstantiated claims like this. So I'm proud that the right hasn't done that. I think we can still fight very hard while doing so in a principled way, and, and, and that's what I would hope for the future. And Molly, I mean, what do you make of the coverage? Because there are a lot of people that I talk to now, men and women, who you know aren't as dialed in or, or, or know all the details and things that we know and that they can learn in your book, Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. Um, and they still have questions about Christine Blasey Ford. And they say, well, I think something happened to her. I think something happened there. We don't really know everything that we could. Or people who maintain the steadfast position that we have a potential um, assaulter, sexual assaulter on the court right now. I mean, that's the impression that they're left with. And they feel like that this isn't a settled question. I think that's what's so horrible about the way this allegation was handled and the way it was treated by people in the media. It is, of course, important that when people are victims of abuse or assault, that there is justice for for what happens. That does not mean that every allegation is valid or should be taken as the gospel truth. When someone makes an allegation, it is incumbent upon us to evaluate the evidence in support of or against that. In this case, 
we literally had no evidence in support of it. She told a story, a changing story. It changed over time, which was that was one thing that was obscured by the, by many people in the media. She named four witnesses. Not any of them could corroborate her story. And in one case, one of the witnesses was her very good friend, Leland Kaiser, a lifelong liberal, a Democrat. She did not want Justice Kavanaugh on the court. She loved her friend. And she was being asked to support this version of events. And she remembered the summer in question extremely well. But she did not remember anything like this. And in fact, she came to eventually lose confidence in the veracity of her friend's story. And that is another story we tell that that speaks to the courage. I mean, some people just pick sides because they're liberal or conservative. Mm -hmm. This is a woman who cared deeply about being honest and truthful, even under the face of some pressure and what she uh, felt was witness intimidation. Mm -hmm. So do you think that there will always be, in a lot of people's minds, an asterisk by Justice Kavanaugh? as And Carrie, you clerked for Justice Thomas. I mean, that he has had to deal with this for 25 years maintaining his innocence but there is a good swath of the country who says no i was compelled by the testimony of anita hill and um just like there will be those who say i'm compelled by the testimony of christine blase ford and that's always just going to be an asterisk for me when i look at this person i think that's a couple things and at first i think that's the reason that there are processes in place to be able to examine these these uh, allegations in a confidential way because we don't want to we don't ignore them as as molly was saying but they, they were put into place after the Thomas Hill hearings because they wanted a, a way of doing that without damaging both the nominee's reputation and the, the uh, putting the accuser out there in, for public criticism as well. Th- that was purposely ignored in this case, and that was a real shame for everyone involved. But I think also that goes to the reason we wrote Justice on Trial, because after having clerked for uh, Justice uh, Thomas, who I absolutely love and admire, you can you can see, though, and you, as you're paying attention to the, the drumbeat of misinformation that's being given about what really went on, the people who watched those hearings in real time immediately after the Thomas and Hill hearings, two to one said they believe Thomas and not Hill. But you've had a, a campaign of kind of trying to sell the opposite narrative. So we want to make sure that we don't allow that uh, revisionist history to take root again around the, the Kavanaugh confirmation. That's why it's so important to get a thorough review of the actual facts out there. Would you think people will have an open mind? Do you think after reading your book, where, are the, where however they come to this particular moment in history, do you think that they will be people could be persuaded who are doubtful of him and people who say, I do believe Christine Blasey Ford. I think it's a little bit difficult to reason people out of a position that they have gotten into based on emotion. But I do hope that by laying out the evidence and we do it in a very even handed and balanced way, just looking at what happened with this confirmation battle, looking at the allegations, looking at them in detail and looking at the evidence in support of and against them, that they can make a decision. It is perfectly fine to dislike Justice Kavanaugh, even if he is a fairly well-regarded federal, has long been a well-regarded federal judge. The There is a difference between having a difference of opinion about his philosophy and destroying a man without evidence. And, and this is, it's important that people make their debate, make their arguments in a more fair fashion, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to read you something from Brian Fallon, who you are familiar with, um, the executive director of We Demand Justice. They clearly have a very different take on the judiciary and the kind of people that they would want to see seated on the bench. He says uh, in his tweet, referring to your book, uh, there were multiple true journalists who got book deals soon after the Kavanaugh confirmation and who've been digging deeper into the Kavanaugh allegations. This pro-Kavanaugh propaganda was rushed out to try to get ahead of what the right fears 
is coming. Who wants to take that one? Yes. Well, I, I appreciated that tweet in a way because it confirms what, what we had already kind of known, which were which was that there were some reporters who were actively involved in the anti-Kavanaugh effort, even though they present themselves as mainstream journalists, uh, who are writing books on this. And we knew, because we, we were covering this uh, confirmation battle or, or involved, that there were many interesting stories, but people did not want to share those stories with people who had been active in the uh, in the effort to fight Kavanaugh. Um, Brian Fallon, who leads a uh, liberal judicial group, obviously was coordinating with them. He kind of confirms it in that tweet. And I think that's why it's important to, again, just have the people who actually won this confirmation, being able to tell their stories, and by interviewing so many of them, you know, more than 100 people at the White House, the Supreme Court, in the Senate, we're able to get the definitive account of what happened. And we don't whitewash anything. We cover we cover everything that's, that's out there. Uh, but I'm glad that we were able to do that definitive account because we know, as Carrie just noted, there can be some propaganda efforts or um, efforts to rewrite history different than what it was. One question you all mentioned earlier, and I wanted to go back to this because it was one of the big questions that we had when we're covering this in real time was about that letter to Senator Dianne Feinstein, ranking member on the Senate Judiciary Committee, top Democrat there, about how that letter, how the story went public. Because, you know, we heard Christine Blasey Ford say that she did not want to go public. I mean, that that was not her initial goal. Um, I'm sure that you all have some interesting takes on learning the backstory to, you know, the cleaning and scrubbing of her social media in advance, reaching out to the Washington Post tip line, which we knew that that Mm -hmm. had happened. But do we know specifically how the letter came into the public sphere? Yeah. So this this is something that was interesting because she did claim that she didn't want to be out there publicly. And you can understand why. Well, of course. It's just it's just a little challenging because it's also at odds with the, the fact that the first person she called about the allegations was, in fact, the Washington Post tip line, which isn't traditionally a way one goes about not getting their story into the media. Um, we know that, that, for example, the people who had access to that letter were Feinstein in uh, Congresswoman Eshoo. We knew that de Blasey Ford had it and her lawyers had it and maybe some of her friends. So all of these people who claim to have her interests at heart, which are her stated interests are not to have it in the public, somewhere in that group, there was there was a leaker. With with the Thomas Hill hearings, um, there was actually a congressional investigation as to what it is. I, I think there should be because I think that Congress um, ought to know what's going on with the, conf- the information that should have been kept confidential within within the Senate. But um, I think that that's, that is a real uh, problem to see. We do know that Senator Dianne Feinstein had this letter, that she had a process she could have used to handle it confidentially, and instead she brokered an agreement with an attorney who's known for her public relations efforts and getting her client's stories into the media, which is what happened. Um, But it is an unfortunate thing because I do worry that it hurts uh, people who come forward with accusations. It is important that we treat those carefully, and that did not happen in this case, and I don't think it served anybody's interests very well. Was there ever a point that you all discovered in talking with folks at the White House, um, you know, close to the Kavanaugh's and everybody else that you talked to, was there a point at which the White House ever considered withdrawing his nomination or that he considered withdrawing it that you discovered? Not not that the inside team and that Kavanaugh himself did. I think that was they, they all were very strong. And really importantly, President Trump was very strong in, in the support of his nominee, because I, I think a lot of people that we spoke to that were involved in the effort thought not every president 
would have stood by that. And they, they all felt like they could think of examples where someone may have just said, you know, this is getting too hot to handle. We're going to step back. I think that would have been a real failure, not only because that nominee wouldn't have been confirmed, but because that would have encouraged and incentivized this kind of behavior much more so going forward. What we did learn that was very interesting, though, is that there were some very high-placed people, including um, a Republican senator, for example, on the Judiciary Committee, um, that would probably surprise a lot of people that in the middle of the Kavanaugh hearings, remember at halftime there, after her testimony, a lot of people were saying, oh, gosh, this is, that was this is looking bad. It was believable. Yep. Yeah. He went, this person went to Senator Collins and said, you know, maybe we should go to the White House and tell them to this is time to, to cut, cut Kavanaugh loose and go with a different nominee. And, you know, to her credit, she said, I really do believe in due process. I don't believe in doing that until we hear both sides of the story. Let's give him a chance. And so um, she stood steadfast. Again, the president, the president did stand firm behind his nominee, and I think that really speaks very well of all of their courage. And the White House team was actually prepared for this, and they'd been prepared going back to the primary. They had put together a list of judges who would be good. One of the things they were looking for was having the courage to withstand some type of uh, assault like this. And so that internal White House team was pretty solid. Not everybody at the White House, but the people who are actually managing the nomination. But it was so interesting to hear their stories of what it was like to to go through this. And they thought they were prepared, but even with that, they realized that they weren't quite prepared for how bad things mm-hmm. could get. In the book is Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. You will learn so many things if you followed this, if you had any passing interest, if you really were into it. Like all of us have learned things from this book that we did not know. There was no way to know in real time. It's fascinating how much you guys have great connections. You dug, you reported, you did real journalism. Um, Not everybody's going to like it. And we'll look at the other books that come out as well, and maybe we'll learn additional facts from those. Again, Carrie Severino and Molly Hemingway. Uh, Check it out if you're interested in the story. No matter where you came down, Oh, Justice Kavanaugh, you're going to learn things that you did not know. So thanks for stopping by to discuss it with us on Live in the Brain. Thank thanks, you so Shannon. much, Shannon. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.